I want to encourage you, if you haven't yet, to, uh, after the service, grab a coffee and have a look at the posters at the back there to see kind of where we've come from, where we're going, where we believe God is leading us in the future. Uh, grab a booklet. We've got a number of these booklets at the back on the table under the mirror, which, which details more than what we could get on four posters of, of how God's led us to this point and, and why we're in the middle of a, a building and capital campaign. I want to tell you that uh, we have, have had a couple of pledge cards come in and some gifts towards the project as well. So while you're looking at those posters, look at the thermometer on the right-hand side and that, those levels are starting to go up. And so that's exciting. And so have a look at that too. Uh, this morning, we are wrapping up the, the sermon series that goes along with our capital campaign, this Seeking God's Direction sermon series. That, that doesn't mean that we're going to stop talking about the project for the next weeks, but uh, uh, I encourage you to, to grab one of those booklets and, and spend some time with it over the next few weeks. Even if you're visiting with us, by all means, grab one of those because this is, a lot of this is, is heart issue. This is a discipleship issue. It's not just our church is fundraising, but uh, grab one of those books, and, and I'll invite you to head back to page 21. There's a section there starting on our giving preparation. And that section has four parts for each of us to work through individually and as families, as we consider how, how God is asking us to be a part of this project specifically. But again, this applies to wherever we are as well. Now, those four parts are to pray. First and foremost, we want to ask God. We want to come before Him and say, Here's what we're doing. God, do you know what the church is up to? How am I going to be a part of this? What are you calling me to? The second section of those four is to read. There's a number of specific uh, Bible passages there. Some we've talked about through this series and, and some others. But we want to, again, ground our lives and how we handle what God has given us on his word. And so I'd invite you to check out that. The third part is to wait. We don't want anyone to make a rash decision and, and, and do something impulsively, but rather to actually spend time reading and praying and hear from the Lord and wait on the Lord to hear what he is calling you to. And then the final space there is to act. And, and when God tells you, I, I, I'd like you to do this, do that thing. Sometimes that's maybe the hardest part is to step into what God has called us to do. Now, hopefully the past several weeks, this is week six of our series, our final week, hopefully these weeks have helped you as well to, uh, to shape how you will uh, do those four things, to, to pray, to read, to act, and to wait. And now let me remind you as well that all our sermons eventually make their way onto our website so you can catch up with them there if you've missed a week or two. Well, let me resign, r- remind you as we're coming to the end of the series where we've come from. And again, we started everything with our mission statement. We started in the middle of January with this saying that we as Trinity Bible Church, we're not doing this just to have a nice, uh, maybe a bigger room for us to, to sit in with a higher ceilings and nicer windows to look out here. We, oh, forget the building. Don't forget the building. But it's not about the building. We exist to see people transformed into fully devoted followers of Jesus Christ. That's the grounding. That's the foundation for everything. It's about him. All that we're doing is, is based on what he has called us to do. This mission statement, it's, it's the measuring stick that we use when we evaluate what we're doing, how our services are going, what, are, what programs we pick up, what, what uh, partners we align ourselves with. Do they help us further this mission of seeing people transformed into fully devoted followers of Jesus Christ? Our website as well says that, that we do these things by his grace and for his glory. It's all about him. It's not about building this nicer, bigger room for ourselves, but it is all about seeing people transformed into fully devoted followers of Jesus Christ. 
The second week, we added to that mission statement, we added this vision, and we've kind of refined the language. I've kind of refined the language, I think, week by week as we go through. But we want to see the light and glory of Jesus Christ saturate the Bow Valley and beyond. And so we want to see ourselves as light bearers. We want to see ourselves coming back to uh, you know, the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus says, you are salt and you are light. You are the light bringer. So each one of us is a light bearer as we uh, go into our days through and around the Bow Valley, wherever we are. We want to see Trinity Bible Church with this kind of lighthouse image. I haven't got a better like, picture than a lighthouse. There's not a lot of lighthouses in Canmore. But it works, I think, still, right? We can imagine. I haven't seen one at Quarry Lake yet. or I don't know. But we've got this sort of lighthouse image of the, the light and glory of Jesus bursting out the windows, blowing off the roof, and, and saturating and filling the Bow Valley. We want to see ourselves as, as an, an embassy of light, or an embassy of Jesus' glory. Then we moved on to a little more uh, heart work, we'll say, when we started talking about stewardship and generosity. And uh, we looked for a week at God as the ultimate giver. We camped for a fair bit of time on John 3.16, which maybe you know, uh, says, For God so loved the world that he gave. Wait a second, that changes everything. If God is generous, and that's the root of it, that God is so generous that he gave his son for us, Okay, I, I can give too. I can reflect who God is by also striving to be more and more generous. That week we looked at, at four proofs of God's generosity. We said, look at the world around us. It, it, it shows us that God is generous with us. It's, I mean, come on, look out the windows. There's snow on the mountains today. It's, it's one of the best days to look at just the beauty of the landscape. But beyond that, we live in a world that we can raise our own, raise food, we can grow food, we can, like just all this Creation points us to a creator. We looked at a quote where someone said, you know what, the the world is so perfectly fine-tuned, it's like somebody was waiting for us to come, just preparing for us to be here. God has created this for us. We looked at salvation, this for God's love, the world that he gave. We looked at this, the generosity of God to give us his son. We looked at redemption, how God can redeem any situation. We, we, I know we know in our minds and have some stories in our hearts where we've seen tragedy or trauma and God redeem those things for his goodness and his glory. And we looked at invention, this idea that uh, as God uh, created, he made us in his image. So we have a little bit of that creative creativity in us as well. And I mean, we've got lights, we've got running water, we've got flushable toilets. Thank you, Jesus, for that generosity. All these things right, are point us that God is generous with us. And so we said that week that, that we can be generous because he has been so generous with us. The next week, we looked uh, at four principles of how we handle our treasure, how we handle our stuff. We, we broke it down into four. We said we've, there's the ownership principle that suggests that, that all that we have belongs to God anyways. And so our job is to steward or to handle those things wisely. And we're going to lean on that a little bit later as well. We looked at the, the treasure principle and said, where your treasure is, that's where your heart will go. And so I said, okay, where is my treasure right now? Where is my heart going to follow my treasure? Or also, kind of on the flip side, where do I want my heart? So how do I reroute and reorient my treasure there? We looked at the wisdom principle and said, listen, if the Bible has 800 plus passages on dealing with our possessions and money and stuff and 2,000 or more verses on dealing with these things, if, if Jesus talked more about money than he did about heaven and hell combined, probably the Bible is perfectly capable of teaching us how to deal with our stuff, with our money. 
And finally, the fourth principle that week was the contentment principle, that, that God can and will help us be content no matter our circumstances. When, wherever we find ourselves. He's the only place that will find true and lasting meaning and purpose and value and contentment because he invented contentment. He created us. Last week, we looked at making kingdom investments, specifically at how we give and where we give, how we handle our money. And we really kind of rooted that discussion in two questions. First, where is your heart? Because again, your treasure follows your heart and your heart follows your treasure. It's kind of a both and thing. And the second question was, who is your leader? And so we talked about tithing. We talked about offerings. And we talked about, we looked at that passage back in Malachi 3 where it says uh, there's, there's a place that we can either be in God's blessing or we can be under his curse. And we can say, listen, we are either choosing to be, if we are obedient in how we handle our stuff, we're either choosing to be with God or we're saying, I'm going to go my way. And we find ourselves under what the Bible calls this curse, apart from God's blessing and apart from God's presence because we've chosen to go somewhere else. We looked at, as I mentioned, Malachi 3 for that. We also looked at Matthew 6 in the Sermon on the Mount again, verses 19 through 33. A couple of the highlights that we were at last week. Jesus says, again, where your treasure is there, the desires of your heart will be also. A couple of verses later, I think it's about verse 24. He said, listen, you cannot serve both God and money. Sometimes we think, okay, I'll give God everything except my checkbook. And I'm going to handle this part of my life. Jesus says, you can't do that. Those things go the opposite direction. It's like trying to walk in two different directions at the same time. And finally, we, we rooted the whole discussion and lots of what we've talked about through the series on verse 33. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all of these things will be added to you as well. He'll take care of you. Now there is a lot to wrestle through there. And I hope that kind of by, by repeating each week and saying, hey, this is where we've come from, here's where we're going. It's a good reminder that, that all of these things really are heart issues. There was one week uh, where we were talking about, it was, it was either the giving week or the, the principles week before that, where it was so quiet in this room. Sometimes there's a little bit of whatever, but that week it, it was dead quiet. And I think... And I took it as, maybe it wasn't this, but I'm taking it as God is challenging us with what we have and what he's calling us to do and doing a heart work. So there's, there's a lot of heart work that needs and needs to go on through this series as we talk about these things. Because how we handle what God has given us is a huge piece of what it means to follow him. It's a huge piece of what it means to be a disciple or fully devoted followers of Jesus. So this morning, I want to, to wrap up the, the series and, and this, this time together looking at one of the parables that Jesus told because I think it does sum up a lot of what we've been talking about for the last number of weeks. Now, the principles in this parable are found throughout the Bible, but it's really helpful that Jesus kind of pulls them together all right here. So if you have a Bible, and, and I hope that you do, uh, you can turn with me to Matthew chapter 25, and I'm going to start reading it about verse 14. Now, there's some Bibles in the middle of the room if you need one as well. Uh, by all means, take one of those as our gift to you. So let me read for us, starting in Matthew 25, verse 14. This is, again, Jesus telling a parable. It says, For it will be like a man going on a journey, who called his servants and entrusted to them his property. To one he gave five talents, to another two, and to another one, to each according to his ability. And then he went away. While he who had received the five talents went at once and also traded with them, 
and he made five talents more. So also he who had the two talents made two talents more. But the one who received the one talent went and dug in the ground and hid his master's money. Now after a long time, the master of these servants came and settled accounts with them. And the one that had the five talents came forward, bringing his five talents more, and said, Master, you delivered to me five talents. Here, I've made five talents more. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Come and enjoy the joy of your master. And he also went to the one who had two talents. And the one with two talents came forward, saying, Master, you delivered to me two talents. Here, I made you two talents more. And his master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful over little, and I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. Now he also who had received the one talent came forward, saying, Master, I knew you were a hard man, reaping where you didn't sow, and gathering where you scattered no seed, and so I was afraid. I went, and I hid your talent in the ground. Here, you have what is yours. But the master answered him, You wicked and slothful servant, you knew I reap where I haven't sown, and gather where I scattered no seed. Then you ought to have invested my money with the bankers, and at my coming I should have at least received what was my own with interest. Now, we are, again, sort of parachuting into the middle of Matthew chapter 25 here. So just to put this in context, Jesus here is talking about the kingdom of heaven. When he says, again, it is like this. If we back up, we, we see that he's just told two other parables about what uh, his kingdom is like and what his second coming will be like. And so this parable kind of points us to, as one writer says, a faithfulness that works. Now, to be really clear, it's not the work that makes someone faithful, but it's that our love and our faithfulness and the, the love and faithfulness that we see of the servants to their master, they work for him because of that, out of that relationship they have with him, at least the first two. This is about a faithfulness that, that works, that does something. So a couple of things you want to note from this parable before we really drive it home is that the man or the master in the parable is Jesus. And maybe if we, again, take chapters 24 and 25 together, this is pretty clearly the case, that that's who he's talking about. Also, if we look at Matthew's gospel as a whole, one of the, the most common or most frequent titles for Jesus that Matthew uses is master, or elsewhere the same words translated as Lord. Again, I'm only pointing this out because we're parachuting into a text here. What we learn from this parable is that Jesus is the man, Jesus is the master, Jesus is the Lord. He is the one that gives out the talents to his servants, that he goes away, and then he comes back, and he settles accounts. We see the property in verse 14 clarified a little bit later, I think in verse 18, as money. Now if we... In the English language, we are so spoiled with translations and, and paraphrases to, to come at this. If we look at Eugene Peterson's paraphrase in the message, he actually uses sums of money there. He says that to one that he gave $5,000, another he gave $2,000, another he gave $1,000, which is a significant amount. Others note, though, that, that talent was actually a measure. It was, it was a weight of gold or silver. And so as the scholars wrestle over these things, that would make this significantly more money. Some suggest that, that eight talents of gold is probably around $2 million or so in our modern money. Either way, we're talking about a significant amount of money, property, as the parable says. One commentator says, 
The amount given out here is surprisingly high. And the shock of it is intended to compel us to think of Christ's generosity. And it's intended to move us to worship. That, that this king would, or this lord, this master would actually give this much should point us to say, praise God from whom all blessings flow. He goes on to say, Jesus gives such great gifts to his church. The one, the two, the four, the five, the ten talents remind me of the, the ten thousand talents in the parable of the unforgiving servant in Matthew chapter 18. Then through Christ, God forgives our zillion dollar debt. Jesus paid it all, the hymn writers right? And in Christ and with Christ, he gives us at least $300,000 to work with to serve him. All I have I owe to him. Now as well, it's worth noting that the talents here in the parable can refer to, to more than just money. Again, it's a parable, and parables are short stories that are designed to point us to deeper spiritual truths. And so even though in this story it's money specifically mentioned, the parable can apply to much more than that. Doug O'Donnell notes this. He said, a talent could mean the gifts of knowledge, or health, or strength, or time, or intellect, or advantages, or opportunities. Our, our various responsibilities, whether it's our jobs or our vocations. A talent could refer to, to people, maybe a spouse, or a child, or friends. Or even further, to our natural abilities, talents, as we use that word in English. He says a talent can also mean or include our spiritual gifts, as Peter and Paul called them. Things like our gift of teaching or administration or mercy or healing or so on. He says that the talents symbolize more than money, but not less than money. He says, listen, just because Jesus is not teaching economic theory here, don't think that he's not teaching some economic truths. Money matters to Jesus. And it is the master's money, and quite plainly, that we are dealing with here. And so while we need not limit the application of this parable just to money matters, let's not be so quickly to expand talents to mean everything except our use of money. So if we get back to the parable, the parable here and some of the key symbols, the master is Jesus. The talents are our treasure, our money, our gifts, our relationships, our abilities, all of these things. And the servants are those who would call the master Lord. That's those of us who follow Jesus. Now, just as a bit of an aside, as if I haven't given you enough to wrestle with over the last few weeks here, how do you feel about being labeled as servant? Or as the word here can be otherwise translated as a slave to Jesus? How does your ego feel about that as your identity? Are you okay with the title of servant? It's important for us as we read the New Testament to note that, that Paul was okay with that. Peter was okay with that. They both opened their letters identifying themselves as, you know, Paul, servant of Jesus. Peter, servant of Jesus. How do we feel about that title sort of hanging over our heads? Servant of Jesus. It means submitting to something that's not ourselves. And that can be super hard. Back to the parable. The next thing we want to note is what each servant did with what they were given. The first two we read, they, they got to work right away. We read the first servant went at once and traded with those talents. And so also the second one did the same thing. But the third guy didn't do any work, did he? We read that at some point during that long time that the master was away, he went and dug a hole, which took who knows how long, probably not that long, and buried the one talent that he was given. Then we get to the, to the master's return. 
The first two bring their talents back to the master, and they, they show that they've doubled what they were given. And notice, this is, I think, really important. Highlight, circle both of these verses. They were recorded or re- rewarded equally. One commentator points out for us that, that since both servants receive the same reward, it shows that what's valued is not the accomplishments in a quantitative sense, how much are you bringing back, but our fidelity in commitment, that you worked, that you did bring something back. In other words, the amount isn't important, and we'll come back to this in a little bit. As we read the, the master's response to these two, we see that, that the first two guys both get identical and an identical threefold reward. Well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter the joy of your master. They get this praise-filled uh, approval. Well done, good and faithful servant. They're given more responsibility, which is kind of interesting, isn't it? I appreciate, again, what, what O'Donnell says. He says, you see, the people, the servants, as Jesus called them, people who serve God and others, people of the kingdom and heaven on earth now and in heaven later, are not passive. They did something. They worked in the parable. They are given more responsibility through the parable. He says, to enter into the kingdom through faith in Christ is to enter into his workforce. And in a sense, it's, it's a return to Eden to pre-fall holiness, where, where work was given to mankind as a divine gift, not as a curse. He says, I'll put it this way, do your kingdom work well now and you will be rewarded with more work now and especially then. They get these two things. They get this, this praise-filled approval. They get more responsibility and they get to, to enter the Lord's joy. Right? Enter the joy of your master. They get to be with the master. They get to be in his presence. They get to to feast with him. And their lives will be filled with his joy. So that's a a really quick overview of the parable. What's going on here. What Jesus is trying to unpack for his listeners. But what does that mean for us? How does this parable apply to the series we're wrapping up? How does it apply to our, our capital campaign? And more importantly than either of those two things. How does this parable apply to our discipleship? How does it apply to the way we follow Jesus? Let me sum up and point out four principles that we can take from this passage as we wrap this series up. And there will be some familiarity with what we've covered in the previous weeks as well. But the first principle is this. Again, that God owns it all. We covered this a bit with the ownership principle a couple weeks ago, so we won't spend a whole lot of time here. But if we believe in God, if we believe that he's created everything, and that he is Lord over it all, then kind of a trickle-down belief of that is that everything we have has been given to us by Him. Our health, our intelligence, our skills, our abilities, it's all as a result of God's work and intelligence, uh, God's work in and through us. If we flip back to Deuteronomy 8, verse 17 and 18, we see this, Beware lest you say in your hearts that, that my power and the might of my hand have gotten me this wealth. Moses says, you shall remember the Lord your God, for it is he who gives you the power to get wealth. I don't know about you, but it is really easy for me at times to pat myself on the back and say, boy, it sure is a good thing we started saving here when we did. We invested well here. We must have done something right, because look, look at the stuff we've got. This opportunity we have to live in Canmore. We've got kids that are healthy, whatever else. All these things. We've must, we, we're just great. But we have to remember... All of that stuff is a gift from God. But even more than that, it's not just that everything comes from God, 
but rather that it, it still belongs to him as well. My stuff is actually his stuff. A couple of verses through the Bible that remind us of this. Psalm 24, verse 1. The earth is the Lord and everything's in it. The earth is the Lord's, excuse me, and everything in it. In Leviticus 25, 23, he says, The land is mine. Haggai 2, verse 8. The silver is mine and the gold is mine, declares the Lord. In Psalm 50, verse 10. For every animal of the forest is mine and the cattle on a thousand hills. It's all his. So, two implications of that, two implications of God's ownership and God owning everything. If it's his, if he owns it, then he has the rights to it. That means I'm just responsible for it. I'm not an owner, I'm a manager. God owns it, I manage it. And this is a trust relationship that for some reason, he's entered into with me, with us. God owns, I manage And if God owns it all, then every spending decision we make becomes a spiritual decision, which is kind of something we need to wrap our heads around. If it's his stuff anyways, and I'm managing it, the question isn't, God, what do you want me to do with my money? Instead, it's, God, what do you want me to do with your money? How would you like me to manage your resources in the time you've given me on this earth? It's his money. It's his stuff. It's his resources. The second principle we can pull out of this, and I think it was pretty clear, I hope, from the parable, is that the amount is not important. I think it's, it's really easy for us to sometimes to, to look at, it's always easy to look at the person in the next tax bracket ahead, right? And say, well, I'm doing better than they are. I'm more generous than they are. I've given more than them. But that's not the point. God's not concerned about the amount that you are managing but he's concerned about the management process itself because, again, it's a heart thing. From the parables, the guys who managed both five and two talents got identical affirmations. Well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful, responsible with a little. Let me put you over much. Enter the joy of your master. Identical. So the amount of money, or as we expand talents, the amount of, of gifts and ability and influence and whatever, that's not the key issue. It's the how that's the key issue. Which leads us to the third principle, that we are accountable to God for our use of money. If it's his, which we said it was in the first principle, and we're the managers of what he has allowed us to have, then ultimately we are accountable to him for how we manage it. And again, we we saw this in the parable. When the master returned, there was a time when the people who he had given responsibility came before him and gave an accounting of how they'd managed their respective talents. And that day's coming for each one of us too. Individually, as families, as a church, someday we will stand before God and say, you gave me this, here's what I did. As a church, as church leaders, we sometimes will we'll stand even, you don't want to say more than that, but God will say, how did you lead my church? How did you point your kids to Jesus? How did you do all, all of these things? How did you manage what I gave you? Which brings us to the final principle. Money isn't life. Money is a life test. We haven't really talked about the third person in the parable yet, but he's the only one whose efforts were found lacking. He knew what he should have done. The other two did. And Jesus said, the master gave according to their abilities. So it's not like he didn't get enough destruction, he was just nervous or whatever, and, and buried it and whatever. 
But he knew what he should have done and he didn't do it. He'd be given a test and he had failed it miserably. I appreciate how uh, pastor and author James Emery White describes this for us. He says, this life is like one big audition for the life to come. When it comes to our time and our, our talents and our money and our resources, we've all been given a little bit for a very short amount of time. It's not ours. Everything we have is a gift from God and, or, and, and God in order to see how we manage it. It's his. And if we manage it well, we'll be entrusted with more, not just in this life, but in the life to come. But how we mess this up is this way. Instead of seeing what we've been given as the life test, we kick God completely out of the equation and see money as life itself. See, we need to understand that, that our, our talents, and however we want to kind of flesh the parable out, our talents aren't life. Collecting stuff, uh, growing in our ability, growing in, in any of these things, this isn't what life is all about. But it's the test. It's the life test. And at the end of the day, when this life is over, everything goes back into the box. We can't take any of it with us. An analogy a little bit. For a while, my son Jaden loved the game of Monopoly. Loved. Every day. Can we play Monopoly? We have at least three different versions of the board game in our house. One that he bought by himself because we didn't have the original Monopoly. And so he took his birthday money down to Canadian Tire and he bought Monopoly. Plus... On top of those three, or maybe four, we have Canmoreopoly, which Jaden created himself. Patent pending, and uh, see if a game, game maker will pick that one up for us. Now, over the course of the times we played this game together, there were some times where the results were great for Jaden. Everything went well. He wheeled and dealed himself into winning the game. But we also have a picture of two, as all good parents take when their kids are distraught. <clears throat> of Jaden at the end of the game with his head and his hands on the table and every piece of property in front of him upside down, mortgaged, and no money at all. But here's the lesson from Monopoly, one that, that James Dobson writes about as well. He says, at the end of the game, it all goes back in the box. All the hotels, all the houses, boardwalk, park place, all the railroads, all the utilities, all the thousands of dollars. It's not bad to play the game. It's not bad to even be good at the game. But the danger is to forget what really matters or to make the game everything. If we forget that, if we forget that in the end it, it all goes back in the box, that's the danger. Because it's not even our box that it goes back into. It's God's. And so see, what matters most isn't whether you beat everybody else or whether you got all the right properties or whether you played by the right rules or whether you made the right decisions because the game will end. In our life, our possessions, our resume, our bodies, our pleasures, other people's opinions of us, security, titles and position, youth, power, physical attractiveness, health, and of course, our money, it all goes back in the box at the end of our lives. There's only two things that don't. Us and how we lived. Us and the life test. And so as we go through these next couple, maybe even hours and days and weeks, consider and wrestle through these four principles. God owns it all. The amount that he's given us to, to be responsible for, to manage, isn't important. It's, it's the management process that's important. Remember and wrestle with it, that we are accountable. We will be held accountable to God for our use of his stuff that he's given us as a, as a responsibility in this life. And finally, 
wrestle with the fact that, that money isn't life, but money is a life test. Let me pray for us. God, thank you for your word. Thank you for the Bible. Jesus, thank you that you were the, the master storyteller that could, could weave stories, that could maybe uh, even get deeper and, and dig into our hearts uh, more than, than just plain stating the words. Thank you that we can identify with, with the stories, with the parables. I pray that you would help us to wrestle through these principles, that, that you own everything, that, that what you've given us, the amount you've given us isn't important, but it's, it's a management issue, it's, it's a heart issue. That we will be held accountable because our, our, our time is short. And that all that we have is, is a life test. Jesus, thank you that you, you showed us how to pass that test. You came, you walked this earth as one of us. You, you were tempted in every way as we were, the Bible says, but you were without sin. You showed us how to rightly relate to, to God and creation and to others. And then for all the ways that we did go our own way, for all the ways that we didn't believe in God's truth, for all the ways that we thought we knew better than God, all of our sin and rebellion, you went to the cross and paid the price for it. And thank you that you, you didn't stay dead, you, you didn't stay in the grave, but three days later you were raised again, and the same power that raised you from the dead is alive in us through the Holy Spirit as we follow you. What an amazing, mind-blowing truth that is. But thank you, Jesus, that you were raised from the dead and now you're sitting at the right hand of God interceding for us, praying for us, and that as we recognize that, as we submit to your leadership, as we confess where we fail so many times, you are faithful and just to forgive us, and we can be adopted and grafted back into the family of God. I pray for all of us that we would wrestle with this text, wrestle with these things, that you would put in our hearts, that, that at the end of the team, when, when, when the game's packed up and being put away, that we would hear that same threefold affirmation, well done, good and faithful servant. You've been responsible with a little, let me put you over much and enter into the joy of your master. Thank you, Jesus, for all of these things. And we pray these things in your name. Amen.